0: not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's join m i d dot com.
1: Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna,
2: Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of this program. We are in season nine and our theme this season is advancements in congenital heart disease. Our show today is advancements in understanding the liver and fontan patients part two and our guest is Dr. Fred Wu. I want to welcome you back to the program. Dr. Wu, thank you so much for the really informative show we did last week. I'm really excited this week to go into even more depth with you.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me back again.
2: Dr. Wu is board certified in pediatrics, internal medicine, and cardiovascular disease. After receiving his doctor of medicine degree from the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor, he completed a combined residency program in pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical Center and a fellowship in cardiovascular disease, also at the University of Minnesota. In 2007, he completed an advanced fellowship in adult congenital heart disease and pulmonary hypertension at Harvard Medical School and stayed on to become a faculty member of the Boston Adult Congenital Heart and Pulmonary Hypertension Program. Dr. Wu has received a Santa Fe Ventis Fellow Travel Award for research a teaching award from the Harvard Medical School Academy Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence and grant funding through Boston Children's Hospital's Innovation and Digital Health Accelerator for research into innovative approaches to the management of patients with single ventricle physiology. We have really been getting deeply into how the liver is affected when you have a Fontan circulation, and we've talked about liver surveillance and when Fontan patients should have their livers assessed. but now let's talk about the future of liver treatment in Fontan patients and I know we've already alluded to a little bit of this when you were talking about liver transplants and heart transplants together, but I'm going to be real specific here. Some doctors in the past have said that stage 4 treatment of hypoplastic left heart syndrome is considered transplant. So should we consider that this stage 4 will really mean a heart and a liver transplant?
3: I think most people do agree that uh, Fontan palliation is not a final solution. Eventually, anyone who's had a Fontan operation will probably go on to need something else, whether that's a heart transplant or whether eventually we are able to come up with some sort of replacement for the missing ventricle remains to be seen. But as far as the heart transplant versus heart liver transplant, That certainly has been an area of great concern, particularly for heart failure and transplant specialists. So while the results have been somewhat mixed, some studies have shown worse outcomes after heart transplant for Fontan patients, and some of the problems that have been reported post-transplant include excessive bleeding, or in a few cases fulminant liver failure, where in addition to the severe bleeding, we see buildup of toxic materials like bilirubin and ammonia in the blood that the liver normally metabolizes. So that's why transplant centers are very careful to assess the health of the individual as a whole, the liver, the lungs, the kidneys before they determine whether someone is a candidate for heart transplant. It's also why it's important for those of us who see the Fontan patients every year to keep a close watch on their liver health and their other organ health, so that we don't miss that window of opportunity and wait until it's too late to have people meet with a transplant specialist. It is important to point out that just having liver disease is not necessarily a contraindication to transplant. So there was one study that was published a couple of years ago by the group at Washington University in St. Louis, and they found that The outcomes in 20 Fontan patients after heart transplant did not differ between those who appeared to have cirrhosis on CT scanning and those who did not. In other words, we still don't know the best way to identify Fontan patients whose liver disease puts them at higher risk of complications after heart transplant. There's a lot of different hypotheses out there, so some people do a heart catheterization to look at the resistance in the liver. Some people look for evidence of liver function, but none of those hypotheses yet are backed up by any scientific evidence.
2: I'm just really happy to know that there are centers out there that are even considering these concerns because I really haven't heard much about it. I'm so thrilled that you're on the show today, Dr. Wu, because I know a lot of us old-time parents especially (laughs) have a lot of questions about this, and we're so thrilled to see that our children are aging. In my case, most of my friends have children in their 20s, although I do have some friends whose Fontan children are in their 30s. And so it feels like this is something that is really pioneering regarding the work that's being done.
3: I have some patients that I follow who are in their 50s and 60s who've had their Fontan circulation for well over 30 years. I think the patient that I follow who had the Fontan circulation for the longest had his operation in 1977 and he hasn't had any operation since then. So it really is a tribute to the work that a lot of these pioneering heart surgeons have done, you know, both at Boston Children's Hospital and Children's Hospital Philadelphia and elsewhere. It really is quite amazing.
2: It really, really is. So do we have any data on the percentage of Fontan patients who actually do need a liver transplant?
3: Well, again, the difficulty there comes in not really knowing for sure which patients need a heart-liver transplant and which patients will do fine with a heart transplant alone. Again, very few heart-liver transplants are done compared to heart-only transplants. So I would estimate that there's probably somewhere between 10 and 20 Fontan patients who get transplanted per year. And probably only about 10% of those go on to get a heart liver transplant instead of a heart-only transplant. Part of that is because of the availability. You know, there's only a handful of centers in the country that are doing combined heart liver transplants. In Boston, we don't do them at Boston Children's Hospital or Brigham and Women's Hospital. So for the patients where we feel that they need a combined organ transplant, we generally have to send them elsewhere. And that's not a very easy thing to do. If you're sending patients who live in the Boston area out to Philadelphia, not everybody has the resources to be able to pack up and move out there or to even get temporary housing out there for an extended period of time. So many of the patients who are not felt to be candidates for heart-only transplant may never go on to be even listed for heart-liver transplant because they just don't feel that it's a realistic option.
2: Oh, wow. I didn't even think about that. And is there also a problem with people who are compromised in other ways, perhaps if they have autism Down syndrome, some other kind of syndrome that's involved that they might not be listed?
3: So the process of evaluating patients for transplant candidacy is actually quite complex. And most centers who do transplant have an entire team of professionals who evaluate the patient from cardiac standpoint, from a psychosocial standpoint, even from a, a standpoint of resources and what their support system is like. So Unfortunately, patients who don't have a strong support system or patients who have psychiatric issues that might create an issue for them once they've had a transplant with getting regular follow-up or taking their medications regularly, sometimes that can be a barrier to getting transplant in the end.
2: That all makes sense, but I'm sure you can imagine it is also heartbreaking to parents who might have children who do have barriers that would prevent them from being listed.
3: Yeah, it is a very difficult thing. And it's certainly not an easy task for the transplant committee as well. I think generally what it comes down to is that unfortunately, in our current society, in our current system, there just aren't enough organs to go around. And so a lot of what these committees are doing is trying to make sure that the organs that we have available get the best possible use. There's a lot of things that people are thinking about to try to improve the number of people that become organ donors to improve the pool of organs that are out there. You know, I I was actually just reading that in, I forget which European country it was, I think in Denmark or somewhere. They're actually making people organ donors by default.
2: I saw that. And if you don't want to be an organ donor,
3: you actually have to opt out of that system, which is the exact opposite of what we do now. Right. So, certainly, doing things like that will improve the pool of organs that are available and allow us to do more transplants. And hopefully, people will be more likely to get a transplant than to die or get so sick that they get taken off the transplant list. But in our current situation, we just don't have enough organs to go around. And so that's why we have to have people to make those very difficult decisions.
2: Right. I wouldn't want to make those decisions. I'm sure it is just a horrible process to have to go through and especially to be the one to tell people, I'm sorry, you can't be put on the list. I would not want to have to be that person. So I respect the fact that there is somebody who does have to draw the line somewhere. And I think you're right. If we could make the pool of available organs bigger, then we would be able to have more people on that list. And that would make a huge difference. When I saw so many
1: of these CHG groups growing, I found family just ready to join me.
0: Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show.
1: We have a great year planned, and we look forward to sharing other interesting topics. Heart to Heart with Nicole and David, serving the ACHD community, Wednesdays
0: at noon Eastern.
1: the Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at heart heart com. That's Anna at heart heart com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna.
2: I know a lot of our listeners are parents of young children with Fontan hearts, and I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of advice for the parents who have young children, what they can do to keep their children's livers as healthy as possible so we can see the fewest number of consequences from having a Fontan heart.
3: Sure. It's going to sound very much like the advice that I would give an adult patient, but it's particularly important, I think, for parents because a lot of the habits that we get into as adults are really ingrained in us as children. So the things that we talked about earlier uh, really apply here and will really help to have these patients really be able to look out for themselves as they get older. So again, we really encourage parents to allow their kids to be active and not sit in front of a TV and play video games all day. A lot of the newer information seems to suggest that the more active people are as children and as adults, the better they tend to do in the long term. Again, we encourage parents to talk to their children early about things like alcohol, which we all know is potentially toxic to the liver. And you wanna talk about that before the kids start experimenting on their own or learning about alcohol from their friends. And as children when you know when your kids get fevers and things like that usually parents will look at ibuprofen or Tylenol to try to bring the fever down. And I think it's okay to use Tylenol you just have to be a little cautious because Tylenol is potentially toxic to the liver as well so you don't want to overdo it. I would certainly talk to the pediatrician or pediatric cardiologist before using Tylenol to see if they think that's appropriate again, it's really just trying to treat your children as normally as possible, but just making them aware that there are certain things that can affect their health in the long term. And I think the earlier we can get these kids ingrained in these healthy habits and learning how to avoid the things that are potentially toxic to the liver, I think the better that their livers will do as they get older.
2: I think that's excellent advice, whether you have a kid with a heart defect or not.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of this is really common sense. I think there's certainly no good way for us to avoid some of the basic problems with the Fontan circulation that affect the liver. So again, the few things that we think make the liver more likely to become fibrotic are the longer time that you've lived with the Fontan circulation and the higher your pressures are in the veins. And there's not much that we can do about that because it's sort of a basic part of having the Fontan physiology, mm-hmm. but there are certainly things that you can avoid to try not to add any additional insult to the liver over the long term.
2: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wu, for gracing us with two different episodes. I feel like we really have a much better understanding of how the liver is affected by having a Fontan
3: heart. Well, we're certainly learning more and more about it as time goes on.
1: The
0: most common themes that I hear is why. She always needed Um, a lot of attention. She had strokes. Even though it's a natural inclination to withdraw from the CHD community, I think being a part of it helped me be part of the solution.
1: Heart to Heart with Michael, please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern. I'm Michael Eben, and I'll be your host as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit HeartToheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at HearttoHeartwithanna.com. That's Anna at HeartToheartwithanna.com. Now back to Heart to Heart with Anna.
2: So now I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball and make a prediction for us. Where do you see the future regarding liver treatment in Fontan patients?
3: Well, I want to emphasize that the Fontan operation has really been Nothing short of a life-changing operation for people born with one functional ventricle. So as we've talked about, it's really amazing to think that thousands of people out there who had less than a 5% chance of surviving to adulthood just 50 years ago are now raising families and they're working in entertainment and some of them are physicians and some of them are lawyers. But I think just like a lot of the surgeries that were once considered standard of care, so I'm thinking about mustard and sending operations for transposition, have now become obsolete as medical knowledge and technology has improved. So the field as a whole is working toward building a substitute for the missing ventricle in people who have single ventricle physiology. And my hope would be that eventually we won't be doing Fontan operations at all anymore, and we won't even have to worry about the liver.
2: Wow, that's an amazing prediction. And I have to hope that perhaps some of this research that they're doing with stem cells might be some of the techniques that you're talking about that might make the Fontan unnecessary. If we could find a way to give everybody a four-chamber heart, wouldn't that be amazing?
3: Yeah, a lot of the research right now is going into mechanical ways to replace the ventricle. So things like ventricular assist devices, replacing or taking over the role of the right ventricle that isn't there but really the holy grail is if we can essentially grow a new ventricle for people who only have one functional ventricle. And of course, that's going to be a little bit farther off. But if you just look back at the last four or five years of what's been going on with stem cell research and genetic research, it's really quite amazing how fast things can progress. So I think there's a very good chance that within our lifetime, we're going to be seeing people coming up with some way to replace that ventricle that's Basically, grown or developed in a laboratory.
2: I think it's really amazing what they've been able to do with cloning. And I've been sad to see that there haven't been more research projects that deal with cloning because, unfortunately, it seems like it's a political taboo area to go into. But I remember just. 10 or 15 years ago, that they were working really hard to clone heart valves and wanting to create the scaffolding to build a heart in the laboratory using a patient's own cells. Do you think that's something that we will see happen?
3: Well, as far as valves go, we've already seen in the last couple of years people starting to use 3D printers for actually printing biological tissue. So once you have that option, 3D printing a valve out of a patient's stem cells and with some sort of organic scaffolding actually doesn't seem that unrealistic.
2: I think it's very exciting to see where we live right now, the day and time that we live right now, that first of all, that me, just a heart mom, can talk with a doctor of your brilliance and pick your brain like this, and that we can even have this kind of discussion because 50 years ago, this wouldn't have even been possible.
3: Oh, no, I say every day that it's an incredible time to be alive and see all the things that are happening with technology and medical technology in particular.
2: The knowledge that you doctors are getting is filtering down to us, the common people, so that we can become aware, we can become better consumers of health care, and we can be part of the care team. I think that's a huge shift that we've seen happen just over the last couple of decades. Don't you think so?
3: Oh, absolutely. I would say that patients and their families are actually some of our greatest assets and advocates when it comes to doing medical research. I can't tell you how many patients will send me emails or contact me on Twitter volunteering for any studies on Fontan physiology or single ventricle patients that we might be having.
2: Wow, that's great. I love that because I'm sure for a long time, one of the biggest problems you had in research was that your subject pool was so small that it was hard to overgeneralize hard to generalize at all.
3: Right, and I do have to say one of the issues is because there is so much interest and people are so invested in trying to improve outcomes for people with Fontan circulation, one of the challenges we run into is that oftentimes there's multiple studies going on at certain centers, and even though the patients are certainly willing, we can't really have patients enrolled in three different studies at once because sometimes the results will actually interfere with each other, so yeah. Right.
2: Wow, I didn't even think of that, but yes, I imagine that could be a problem. Wow, yes. Well, I have one more question for you, and that is, what advice do you have for Fontan patients themselves in order for them to have a high quality of life with minimal liver morbidity?
3: Well, at risk of repeating myself, again, many patients that I've talked to are quite worried or alarmed about the issue of cirrhosis and liver cancer. So again, I want to emphasize that Fontana-associated liver disease is very different from cirrhosis that you see associated with alcohol and hepatitis. And most patients do very well and have very few complications directly related to their liver disease. But again, that liver disease does have important ramifications for the care in the long term. So it's still very important to remain vigilant. even though I would argue that there's no need to panic. So what I recommend to all Fontan patients is that they make sure that they get immunized against hepatitis. So if you already have this chronic injury to the liver, you want to try to minimize your risk of having another potential source of injury added on top of that. It's now routine to immunize children for hepatitis A and B, but people from my generation typically didn't undergo hepatitis vaccination. So patients should ask their physician if they were vaccinated for hepatitis A and B, and if they weren't, that's something that they should ask about. People should consult with their cardiologist, but for the majority of people, exercise is not only safe, but it's a very important part of maintaining their long term health. I would encourage parents to get their kids in the habit as early as possible of maintaining a diet without too much sodium, as people who have heart disease No sodium causes fluid retention and that leads to higher venous pressures which in turn leads to more hepatic congestion and most cardiologists who take care of congenital heart disease patients believe that the higher the venous pressures are the more rapid the progression of liver disease probably is going to be and as children reach adolescence and adulthood parents and doctors should have very serious discussions about keeping alcohol use to a minimum I rarely tell people that they should completely abstain from alcohol so For special occasions like weddings and things like that, glass of champagne or something here or there probably isn't a big deal. But again, alcohol is toxic to the liver, so alcohol use should be kept to a minimum. And nobody should be smoking anything, whether it's tobacco or marijuana, because healthy lungs are a crucial part of optimizing the health in Fontan circulation.
2: Those all seem so common sensible, but we know that Especially when you're a teenager, teenagers tend to go through a period of thinking they're invincible, and so they think they can do everything their peers do. And even though maybe their heart-healthy peers shouldn't be abusing alcohol or smoking marijuana, especially, or doing any of these things, our kids are kids. And so they'll go through that teenage rebellious period also. But I think it does help for the doctors to be communicating with the patients that not only is this dangerous for your heart-healthy peers, but it's so much more dangerous for you. And I like what you said about you don't have to completely abstain from it, because I think the more you forbid somebody from doing something, the more they want it, but to just keep it very, very minimal.
3: Yeah, I think you make a good point. It's particularly challenging for people who are going through adolescence or growing up with congenital heart disease because you're growing up with scars on your chest and you're going to the hospital periodically. And the most important thing for adolescents is fitting in. And oftentimes, that leads to pressure to drink alcohol or to experiment with drugs and experiment with tobacco. And that's something that holds true for anybody, whether or not they have congenital heart disease. But again, I think if we keep the patients and their families educated so that they know what the potential ramifications are, then hopefully that'll help steer them towards making the right choices.
2: I hope so, too. And I think it really is all about education. Education is power.
3: Oh, I absolutely agree with you.
2: And if people want to have a good quality of life, they're going to need to make some of those difficult decisions. And that's whether you're heart healthy or not.
3: Right. I think one of the things that's unique about taking care of adults with congenital heart disease versus taking care of kids with congenital heart disease is that when you are a pediatric practitioner, I think you're sort of used to telling families and telling kids, you can't do this or you shouldn't do that. And it's much more paternalistic. When you're dealing with adults, you know, you're dealing with people that, are making their own decisions. And everything that people decide to do, whether it's going on a plane ride or going skydiving for fun, is a risk-benefit analysis. So what I do as an adult practitioner really is to try to make sure that the patients have all the information that they need so that they can make the best choices. I would say that there are pediatric cardiologists out there that would tell their patients, you should never do something like jump out of an airplane because we've worked so hard to get you to where you are now. But I think a lot of adult cardiologists would say that our whole goal of getting you to adulthood was so that you could live as normal a life as possible and have the same choices and options as everybody else. So I certainly don't want to restrict my patients in terms of things that they want to do as a hobby or for fun or for a profession. Yeah.
2: But it is a difficult role for you to play in some ways because most pediatric cardiologists, in my experience, become so much more than just your doctor. They become a trusted advisor and in some cases even like a friend of the family.
3: Yeah, it is very tough. And you make a great point. That's actually one of the reasons I think that transition of care is one of the most difficult areas of caring for adults with congenital heart disease, because many times cardiologists have watched these people grow up. They took care of them as babies. They watched them go through high school, go through college, get married. And oftentimes, the cardiologists are just as reluctant to give up the patients as the patients are to move on to another physician. And I'm not saying that every patient, once they hit 21 years of age, needs to see an adult congenital heart disease specialist. I think there are countries and there are programs where they have a very strict limit on at a certain age, you transition to the adult program. I think that's something that generally has to be somewhat individualized. But, again, I think one of the differences with adult congenital heart disease providers versus pediatric cardiologists is there's more of a partnership role with the patients generally than sort of that parental role that the pediatric cardiologists sometimes have. You know what I mean?
2: Absolutely. I certainly do. (laughs) We love all of you doctors because it seems like this is a calling for so many of you. I think the number of hours that you put into becoming the specialized doctors that you are shows how passionate you are about this population, and we feel it. We feel that this is much more than a job for you. This is a calling.
3: Oh, it really is a privilege, I think, to be able to work with patients and particularly with this group of congenital heart disease patients, because all of you guys are so invested and so educated and all of you do your reading and your research before you come in. It's a particularly rewarding cohort of patients to take care of.
2: Well, that is a perfect note for us to end this episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Wu.
3: Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful.
2: It has been wonderful, and that does conclude today's episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Come back next week to hear the roadmap to success for complex CHD survivors with our guest, Dr. Gil Bornofsky. You can join us on our new talkback session immediately following this show on Pal Talk. Just look for the Hug podcast chat room, and remember, my friends, you are not alone.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host Anna Jaworski can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern time. We'll talk again next week.